Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. What do you see? Adult content. Keep looking. I see adult content that people might be offended by. What do you see? I see binge mode. The binge mode. I see that if people are offended by adult content, they shouldn't listen to binge mode. But if they like the show Game of Thrones, they should listen to it. Do you believe me now, Clegane? When Robert's rebellion was raging, people thought the end was near. The end of the Targaryen dynasty. How will we survive? When Aegon Targaryen turned his eye westward and flew his dragons to Blackwater Rush, the end is near. How will we survive? And thousands of years before that, during the long night, we can forgive them for thinking it truly was the end, but it wasn't. None of it was. The wall has stood through it all. And every winter that ever came has ended. I'm Mallory Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today, now that he's finished swiping some light bedtime reading from the restricted Mm. section, (laughs) Harry Style, it's Ringer staff writer, your maester, Jason Concepcion. Hello. I've washed my hands. That's just (laughs) FYI. Thank God. Taking five showers. (laughs) Jason. Yeah. We don't plan on knitting by the fire while men podcast for us. Fuck no. (laughs) We are in this thing. Binge Mode is back. We are here on the Ringer Podcast Network. As most of you know, we just rewatched and podcasted about all 60 previously existing episodes of Game of Thrones. But yesterday's wars don't matter anymore. No. We're focused on the future. And the present. So we are going to keep the discussion going throughout season seven. We're going to deep dive one episode at a time, one week at a time, joining you guys a couple days after the latest Game of Thrones episode airs. Spoiler warning, as always, though a slightly lighter one than usual, we no longer know what the future holds. But we are still going to go deep on details from the show and the books and the wider world at large alike. And we will, you know, discuss the the scenes for next episode, basically speculate freely about our predictions and our theories and and potential future happenings. So fill your soup (laughs) bowls and clear your chamber pots. In that order. (laughs) And then do it all again. Because it's time to break down Season 7, Episode 1, Dragonstone. Jason, you've been quiet since you came home. You angry with me? No, not angry. You, uh, afraid of me? Should I be? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's no need to be afraid if we are armed with plot points. So let's offer up a brief refresher on what transpired in this season seven premiere. Let's take a quick trip down our very own King's Road. At the Riverlands, the twins, seat of House Frey, Arya wearing the liver-spotted visage of the (laughs) ex-lord of the twins, poisons a throng of Frey family members in the twins' feasting hall. Leave one wolf alive, she says, and the sheep are never safe. Later, Arya comes across Ed Sheeran and a group of Lannister soldiers at camp. She shares their rabbit, mirroring her stay at the farmhouse with the Hound. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And she doesn't kill them. Clegane and the Brothers Without Banners stop at that farmhouse inside a scene of tragedy. The skeletons of the farmer and his daughter, arms intertwined. Later, the Hound sees a vision in the flames. Meanwhile, at and around the wall, in a vision. Bran sees the Night King leading his vast dead army implacably toward the realms of men. Where are they heading? Where are they even in time? Ah, good questions to be asking. We're not sure. But we definitely see a giant at the back of the army of the dead. Yes. Concerning. Mira and Bran arrive at the tunnel to Castle Black. A lot of snow piling up out there, Ed. 
Come on, dude. You got to someone on. get out there and throw some salt. Keep on your the- yard tidy, dude. Terrible. After some extremely quick and limited debate. <laughs> yeah, it's like Ed's seen enough, by the way. Ed's like if a child comes up in a sled and says some weird shit to him, yeah, yeah, fine. It's like you're literally, literally the password for the day is Night King. Yeah. <laughs> you, oh, great. You okay. mentioned him, you're in. You're great. Ed lets them through after a very quick quiz and Bran Stark, the true born heir to Winterfell and, you know, if anyone wants to make this case, they could. The rightful king in the north is back and hopefully heading home. At Winterfell, King John presides over a meeting of leaders from the North, the Vale, and the Free Folk to prepare the realm for the great war to come. Lyanna Mormont dunks on Robert Glover again. Dude, stop standing up and saying shit. She is so great. Sit the fuck down, my guy. She really knows how to command the room. Yeah, and he's like definitely the guy who spent too long Skyping into meetings and doesn't really know how to participate now that he's there in person. Not great. There's a disagreement about how best to handle the treachery of houses Umber and Karstark. Sansa advocates punishment. John argues for amnesty. This discussion is aired in front of the gathered throng. Littlefinger smiles. Later, they carry on their conversation outside. John is concerned that Sansa is trying to undermine him. Sansa wants to know why John won't listen to her. They both have points. A letter from King's Landing arrives. It's Cersei, and she wants John to present himself at the Red Keep to swear fealty to her. Littlefinger continues creeping on Sansa. Brienne feels like he wants something, but what could it be? What could it be, guys? What could it be? Why? Guys, it's sex. It's really sex. <laughs> he wants sex. He does. <laughs> In King's Landing. Things are not great, to be honest, for the Lannisters politically or personally. Cersei's kingdom consists of, at best, as Jamie goes out of his way to point out to her, the Westerlands, the Riverlands. Kinda. Maybe Frey just got wiped out. What's what's the status of of the Stormlands right now? Are they counting the Crownlands? What is this math when he says you've got three of these kingdoms? She definitely doesn't have all of them is the point. And only the Lannister homeland can truly be counted on. And who knows how long that will last? Obviously, that's going to be on Danny's hit list at some point. Speaking of Danny, her armada looms. Jamie knows she will be landing at Dragonstone. Relations between Cersei and Jamie as they're having this chat and just in general, frosty guys, positively frigid. Winter really has come really. to their bedchamber at least. <laughs> Euron's fleet arrives in Blackwater Bay. Never tell Cersei that she doesn't have a plan. She's got one. And it's 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 hot Euron. Yeah, right. <laughs> he looks great. Yeah, he does look All good. of a sudden, he looks great. The new king of the Iron Islands has an audience with the queen, and boy, is he carrying himself like a man yeah. who's there on a mission that he thinks will be successful. He offers his ships in return for her hand in marriage. She gently, gently, extremely gently loves him, and he promises to return with a priceless gift. We will be speculating freely yes. about what that gift might be. The Citadel, Old Town. By day, Sam Tarley works diligently towards his brown chain by emptying and scrubbing the shit-laden chamber pots of the maesters of the Citadel. By night, after stealing the key to the restricted part of the Hogwarts library, he studies up on how to defeat the White Walkers. And Jorah's back! He looks great. Yeah, he looks great. Let's go with that. He looks great. And at Dragonstone, Danny arrives at her ancestral seat, the place of her birth. The planning for the invasion of Westeros begins. Yes. Ready for that. Been waiting a long time for that. Mal. Yeah. We are this world's memory. No. Without us, men would be little better than dogs. But, you know, I like dogs. I love dogs. Honestly, so what's the the problem? What an improvement. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's cut right to the core of it by sticking with the pointy end. The defining theme of this episode is all of this has happened before. All of this will happen again. Cycles, war stories. 
purpose, looming threats, all these things are spinning out in ways that mirror events that have happened in Westeros' past. There's Cersei summoning Jon to King's Landing. Jon would now be the fourth consecutive Lord of Winterfell over two generations of the family to be summoned by the Sovereign, Trueborn, whatever, the person who is ruling from King's Landing at this moment, to come down to the capital and display their fealty by kneeling before the king, or in this case, queen. None of the previous Starks returned home. Lord Ricard, John's grandfather, was called to the Iron Throne to answer for the treason of his son, Brandon, who had threatened Crown Prince Rhaegar after he had allegedly, heavy use of allegedly. Heavy. Extreme, like, underlining and all caps, and then I bold it, allegedly. (laughs) After he allegedly kidnapped Lyanna Stark, uh, Lord Ricard was roasted alive in his own armor with wildfire. Ned, of course, went... Tough way to go. Really bad. That's... No one wants to go like that. Tough way to go. Ned later would go south as a favor to his good old buddy King Robert. And, of course, Rob went um, after he was ordered to appear by King Joffrey in order to swear his oaths after Ned was jailed for treason. He was murdered at the Red Wedding, of course. Ned was beheaded for treason in front of a raucous crowd of the Sept of Baelor. So at least in recent history, nothing good happens when Starks are called south. Such a great point. It's, don't go. The the history is really working against John. Yeah. <laughs> like, just think about it and don't go. Boy. There's no reason to go. And it's also impossible to look at the current status of the North um, vis-a-vis... Uh, the political context of the wider realm and not think of Torrin Stark, the king who knelt. He was the head of House Stark and the king in the north at the time of Aegon's invasion. And by the time Torrin had mustered his banners and marched south of the neck, Aegon had already won smashing victories at Harrenhal, Storm's End at the Field of Fire. King Torrin arrived at the Triton River to find an army 45,000 strong facing him, plus the dragons, so that's bad. Surveying the scene, Torrin chose a prudent course and he knelt. Lay his crown at the feet of the Conqueror and was raised up as Lord of Winterfell, Warden of the North. John is the second king in the north of the post-Targaryen era, but the first to actually be in the north while king. Rob, of course, never got a chance to return home. And it's this, I think, will surely be the outcome that Danny is looking for. Right. She'll be wanting John to kneel. John is bound by tradition, but he's also trying to break with tradition and create something new. On the one hand, he wants to train girls. He wants to put spears in the hands of girls. Love it. Normal for Bear Island, not so much for the rest of the North. Uh, so sorry, boys of summer. Boys of boys summer. Boys. <laughs> it's time for Liana and her like to fucking shine. And let yeah, them shine, is. guys. He wants to stop worrying about the petty squabbles of men, Cersei's demands, and all that shit that he knows doesn't matter anymore, even right. though it mattered very, very recently. But he's also stuck in this really interesting... My father told me, mode. Right. Which is like, we get it, dude. Your father told you shit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And he's trusting people who have crossed him, and perhaps foolishly so. Sansa challenges Jon openly about giving last hearth. she does. And Carhold to younger members of those rebel families without any sanctions on them, without them handing over money, without them handing over hostages. Jon says... I'm not going to strip these families of their ancestral homes because of the crimes of a few reckless sons. Sansa. So there's no punishment for treason and no reward for loyalty? It's a great point. In front of everyone! It's a great point. Not the place, but it's a good point. <laughs> then, later, when I was Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, Jesus fucking Christ. It's like... <laughs> it's like, imagine the eye rolls every day. When, I, when my father told when I was Lord Commander of the... When I was Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, I executed men who betrayed me. I executed men who refused to follow orders. My father always said the man who passes this sentence should swing the sword, and I have tried to live by those words. But I will not punish the son for his father's sins, and I will not take a family home away from a family it has belonged to for centuries. That is my decision. My decision is final! Such conviction from John. The most conviction we've seen from him ever. Yeah, he for years has really looked to the people around him for, if not overt guidance and direction, then at least affirmation. This is really rare for him to just say, no, I know what I think is right and I'm going to do it even against your open, 
objections. Of course, one of the other times that he did this was with the wildlings. Right. <laughs> Plenty of people around him said, uh... Hold up on that. Just Let's one the note. brakes. Yeah. And how did that work out for him? Yeah. Of course, not well. So that is that is notable in terms of the past and all of this happening before all of this happening again. Will John not heeding the objections of his... I mean, what is Sansa here if not an advisor? Right. Come back to bite him in the ass. It is interesting, too, how the show in recent episodes, this premiere, the last, the, the tail end of season six, really building these Ned John links yeah. in like pretty almost heavy handed yes, fashion. The hand is heavy. It's, it's <laughs> really hard to ignore. And, you know, maybe part of that is about making it hurt a little more for John when he ultimately learns the truth of his parentage right. and the idea of Ned as his father is kind of ripped away from him. I mean, we get you already you already referenced a couple of these things and we get another one when he's talking to Sansa, they're sort of debriefing about their little uh, public disagreement. And he says, what did father always used to say? <laughs> Everything before the word but is horseshit. And it's really notable that Sansa's reply there is, he never said that to me. Yeah. She just doesn't have these same father always said right. pulls that John does. And there's been a lot of discussion around this episode about basically which of them is right and which of them is wrong. And I think we agree that they're both right and wrong. Yes. They both are yes. a little misguided. They're also both making good points, though, as you discussed expertly in your Maester column this week, which everyone should read if they haven't. The fact that they – that the thought process is right doesn't necessarily mean the actions exactly. are right. Like when John says, you know, let's not – hold the sins of the father against the sons. Right. That idea is actually valid. Like we yes. are we punishing Danny for what the Mad King did? Right. That wouldn't really even occur to us as right. consumers of this story. So the question becomes, you know, is John showing wisdom here by by saying I can just look beyond this stuff because it isn't what is most important. I'm focusing on something bigger. As right. he says to Sansa, look, if you'd seen the Night King, you'd be able to think of little else either. Or is he being fueled by the same madness of mercy that got Ned killed? And then Sansa, you know, she knows that Ned's path failed. She says to John, Father never wanted us to see how dirty the world was, but Father couldn't protect me and neither can you. Stop trying. <laughs> that is so spot on yeah. and also so damning. And then very shortly thereafter in the same conversation, she adds, you need to be smarter than father. You need to be smarter than Rob. I love them and I miss them, but they made stupid mistakes and they both lost their heads for it. This is an incredible moment. Really I think is. especially for us as like we've talked about this on the podcast before, watching the first 60 episodes in such concentrated fashion, Sansa was such a riser for us. And this, that kind of comment is like the manifestation of her growth. You know, she is really now the avatar and the voice for the audience. That whole you have to be smarter yeah. speech is something that we all sit there shouting as we're watching the show or reading the books or discussing the story. How can these people be making these decisions? And it's just such an incredible moment of transition for her character that the person who used to get knocked more than almost anyone else on this show yeah. is now the one who's speaking for us. The other notable thing about the Winterfell scene here, John and his assembled advisors, is that he's giving Eastwatch to Torment. We should not lose sight of what a massive, massive break from right. tradition this is. He shouldn't either. Right. John, and I think I, I almost say this like both as a warning for what might await him, but also as like a compliment because we're criticizing him right. rightly for being a little bit too bound maybe by some of the rules and regulations and cycles and patterns of what he learned from Ned. But... He was literally murdered yeah. by his men because he let the wildlings through the wall. And now he's going <laughs> to let them man the wall. Even when he's traditional, he is at some, in some ways the biggest rogue on the show. He is in some ways still more comfortable than anyone else saying, maybe convention doesn't say that this choice is right, but I know it is. Talk about all of this has happened for Danny at Dragonstone. Ah, Yes. Targaryens are once again in possession of Dragonstone. 
the westernmost colony of their the former Valerian Empire, where the Targaryens escaped to before the doom, where Aegon planned his invasion in the very room that Danny was walking into at the at the very end of the episode, the painted table chamber. He planned his entire invasion of Westeros from that room, and Danny's gonna do the same with three dragons, just like Aegon. What about Arya? Let's chat a bit about Arya because we get one of the series rare cold opens. Yep. And Arya is the star of it in concerning fashion. It's concerning. She massacres the phrase in the same room in which they murdered her mother, her brother, her sister-in-law, unborn kin. She is literally in some ways play acting yeah. a like oh, it's a reenactment yeah. of the one of the greatest atrocities in her or anyone's yeah. life it's extremely distressing and disconcerting if you think about it in those terms the horror of what occurred there is what is leading her to make this choice to unleash that kind of horror yeah. again it's it's pretty disturbing she is also of course literally using a face from the past to help her achieve her goal she's not just walking in there as aria she is wearing the face of the man who took her family down and also her methods are ones that we've seen before you know not only there's not only the red wedding tie in with the yeah. physical space and gathering people at a feast at a meal right. and taking them out, but using wine yep. as a vessel for poison, luring someone in with this tradition, hey, let's raise our glasses and a toast, and then taking them out. We miss you, Joff. We do. We really do. We really, <laughs> really do. And very interestingly, actually, in both of Arya's scenes, this cold open and then her, her sing-along with Ed later, heavy shades oh of guest rights heavy, heavy, questions. Heavy. And of course, part of what made the Red Wedding such a violation of not only a bannerman's vow and oath to a liege lord, but of basically just decency yeah. and civility and social norms yeah. was the violation of guest rights. So in the cold open, Arya as Frey, says to the assembled, I've gathered every Frey who means a damn thing so I can tell you my plans for this great house now that winter has come. First, a toast. No more of that Dornish horse piss. Wow. This is the finest Arbor Gold. Proper wine for proper heroes. Now, we can get into the technicalities here. They are not technically guests. This right. is their home. She does not drink, so there's not this shared experience, this shared seal. But, this is right on the line. It is. It I mean, is it's a great right area. on the line. Let's be right yeah. on the line. Considering yeah. that this violation is part of what drove her to make this choice, yeah. it is right on the line. On the and line. in a way that, I, for me at least, like makes me pretty concerned about the the darkness that is swallowing Arya whole. And then later, the fireside fireside chat with Ed. You know, they offer her some rabbit. Yeah, she's eyeing their swords. Oh yeah. Not subtly. Not at all subtly. I might add. The camera goes to the sword that's leaning against the tree with the Lannister lion on the pommel. And it, yes. She's just looking around for weapons. How can I take out these guys? I mean, she literally order? says at one point when they're like, why are you heading to King's Landing? Oh, yeah. I'm going to kill the queen. Right. Like, she is, I guess maybe to her credit, not masking her intentions at all. But so they offer her a bite. Share our food. Share our fire. Here you go. Guest first. Right. Oh, no, Arya says. You couldn't. You don't have enough. My mother always told me, be kind to strangers. Strangers will be kind to you. And you see this moment of hesitation on her face. And yeah. what is playing through her mind there? Is she considering the ramifications of eating that food? And what eating it will prohibit her from doing? She wants to kill these Yeah, she people. wants to kill them. They're Lannister soldiers. She doesn't want them to go on and yep. head up to the twins, spot a trouble up there, right? Well, who caused that trouble? Right. She did. Everyone is a threat to her. I think that one of the most chilling moments in the premiere is as this poison is about to course through these men, she says, slaughtered your guests after inviting them into yep. your home. But you didn't slaughter every one of the Starks. No, no. That was your mistake. You should have ripped them all out, root and stem. Leave one wolf alive and the sheep are never safe. And then she removes Frey's face and turns to his wife and says, when people ask you what happened here, tell them the North remembers. Tell them winter came for House Frey. This is the 
vengeance. Yes. The thirst for justice that has fueled Arya the entire time. We recognize that. But there's a level of horror here that is starting to become alarming. Yeah. I mean, at some point, if this is the arc that her character is going to follow, you have to feel like there needs to be a consequence. Right. Or when is redemption just yeah. out of the question for her? I, I mean— And does that matter? I think we're close. <laughs> I was like, if not now, I think we're close. I agree. A um, couple questions that people were reaching out to us on Twitter about or just that were surfacing on the interwebs after yes. this episode. This this scene in particular seemed to raise a lot of questions. One is just, how does her magic actually right. work? People are— wondering about this. You slap on a face. Do you gain all of that person's attributes, height, mannerisms, voice? Or is is Arya just the same kind of gifted impressionist that you are? <laughs> I think that's part of it. I think it's just like she can make the voice work. Also, there's an unknown amount of, of magic at play here that right. we just do not understand. Right. Even just the question of how she's getting her hands on like that much poison. Right. What what tools are at her disposal? Right how now? can she? Do, how is she able to prepare Walder's face? Not in the House of Black and White. Obviously, right. yes. So she can work the magic somehow. Does what does she require? Does she have? Is there some kind of ingredients? Does she need some uh, resources in order to make this work? We just we just don't know. Where is Edmure? Ah, yes. People want to know. Where the hell is that guy? And no one, Jamie, promises Edmure that he can live out his days in Casterly Rock, remember, in, in the comfort uh, befitting a lord. But in Winds of Winter, Frey says to Jamie, Edmure, Edmure's back in the cell. Can't go killing my son by law. Wouldn't be right. <laughs> Almost like he's catching Jamie up on what's going on with Edmure. So who has him? It's really tough to say. I mean, certainly... Frey seems to suggest that he that Edmure is in the dungeons at the Twins, um, but that's not the deal Jamie made. I lean towards he's at Casterly. We just don't know. It's just not clear. And relatedly, who holds Twins? Who owns the Twins now? The Lannister soldiers that Arya crosses paths mention heading up there to deal with a spot of trouble, just a little spot touch, a couple of spots of trouble. So presumably, the Lannisters are taking charge. Um, that's a key location, as we know from Rob's initial marriage pact, right. strategic, important river crossing point. We just don't know who's in charge. I presume that the Lannisters would govern until they could find some Frey cousin or Riverlands lord amenable to working with the Lannisters who they could then give it to. So, you know, Cersei goes out of her way to say to Jamie, enemies to the east. Right. You know, she's every direction. There's an enemy. Well, if you're spreading out your force— to hold all of these different locations, then you're kind of vulnerable in every spot. Yeah. Vulnerable to, uh, you just have to assume germs, pathogens. Oh. Something foul. Jesus. Certainly vulnerable to the stench. <laughs> Young Samuel Tarley living out his dream yeah. of studying at the Citadel to become a knight of the what mind, a dream to become a maester. And boy, does it look glamorous. He is literally on bookshelving. Right. Bowl filling and bowl emptying Shout, duty. Shouts to indoor plumbing, everybody. Just like shouts to that. A crucial uh, building block of civilized society. I'm very happy that we have it. Incredible. You know, one of the gifts that this episode gave us other yeah. than the ship montage, which was tremendous. <laughs> we got a not even a maester moment <laughs> when Sam, who is desperate basically to get to these books, the books with the real information, right. he's there for a reason. The real he shit. wants to learn, gain valuable intel that can help in the Great War. That shit is locked behind a gate. He can't get there. No one has signed his pass for the restricted section. He doesn't have an invisibility <laughs> cloak. What's he going to do? Well, he's asking for permission. Archmaester. He says to Professor Slughorn in a way that really seals this Harry <laughs> analogy. I was wondering if you'd considered my proposition. I don't remember your proposition. I asked you in light of what I'd seen in the North if I could have access to the restricted area of the library. That area is reserved for maesters. Are you a maester? <laughs> not even a maester! He's not even, a, he's not even an acolyte. We'll get into what that means later. Brutal stuff for yeah. Sam. Well, he does have a mission, though. Right. And he says, literally... With respect, 
<laughs> I've seen them. The Army of the Dead, the White Walkers. I was sent here to learn how to defeat them, but everyone in the Citadel, those who will even talk to me, they all doubt the Walkers ever existed in the first place. This entire exchange is fascinating. Yeah. We're going to parse it here, but the response is fascinating. Everyone in the Citadel doubts everything. <laughs> it's their job. But the tales of the Long Night can't be pure fabrication. Too many similarities from unconnected sources. Ah, an opening for Sam. Finally, right. he's meeting resistance. He says no one south of the Twins will listen to him. And this is a theme that we've discussed ad nauseum over the course of the show. Why are people in this world so resistant to opening their minds to what they're hearing, to accepting not only that the White Walkers are back, but that magic is real? It's crazy. It's like almost as if, like, imagine if a leader met with with (laughs) members of an enemy state to discuss undermining the government. But no one believed that it was real. It's like, like, why won't people just believe that, that it would, happened? That would never would that happen. That could never no. happen, could it? <laughs> never. <laughs> Ebros says to him as a, as a way of explaining um, the Citadel's role in Westeros. He says, we are this world's memory, Samuel Tarly. Without us, men would be little better than dogs. Don't remember any meal but the last, can't see forward to any but the next. And every time you leave the house and shut the door, they howl like you're gone forever. When Robert's Rebellion was raging, people thought the end was near. The end of the Targaryen dynasty. How will we survive? When Aegon Targaryen turned his eye westward and flew his dragons to the Blackwater Rush, the end is near. How will we survive? And thousands of years before that, during the Long Night, we can forgive them for thinking it was truly the end. But it wasn't. None of it was. He's trying to say is, yeah, you think that you've seen something really bad and it's the end, but no, we're fine. Like, we're still here. The reason the reason you want to get at those books is because those books are thousands and thousands right. and thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. We're an institution. We're bigger than you, me, anybody else. But it is extremely concerning that more maesters aren't amenable to Sam's information. And then there's just so much Chekhov's wall talk. So much. Chekhov's wall, Chekhov's dragon glass, Chekhov's east watch by it's the sea. Down. A lot and, of it in this And the, Ebros had an interesting comment when he says at the end of that long response to Samwell, he says, the wall stood through all of it, which is not technically true. The wall did not stand right. through all of history. The wall stood, was put up after the long night. Is that a mistake from the show's point of view? Is it just like fuzziness? Or is it an indication that even the most learned archmaesters don't know everything. The thing about that, though, that's so shocking and confounding in, in terms of the theme that we're discussing here is that the looming specter of of Long Night 2.0 here, it's literally, yeah. and all of this has happened before, all of this will yes. happen again, threat. There is textual evidence to look to and point to. There's history. There's lore. What is history? What is lore? Maybe that's hard to know, but there's something there to call upon, something to turn to and say, whoa, what can we learn from what might have happened in the past that can better position us for the future? Most people don't even seem willing to acknowledge that history, let alone learn from it. That is concerning. Extremely. Peter and Sansa... Peter. Cat Stark was the great love of Peter's life. And it was an unrequited love, of course. We've mm. all been there, PD. Cat <laughs> was betrothed first to Brandon Stark, then Ned upon his older brother's tragic murder. But those feelings didn't stop Littlefinger from being Littlefinger. As crazy as he was for Cat, as deeply as he felt for her, and he truly did love her in his way, he never wasted an opportunity to manipulate her if he thought it would advance his interest even a little bit. Season two, episode four, remember, Peter comes to Cat at Renly's camp. Cat pulls a dagger on him because he betrayed Ned, of course, helping spur uh, her husband's execution. And then he tried to make a pass at her saying, essentially, uh, I think this is a sign. Like, we should get together. Still, Ned's dead. still the, arguably the weirdest thing little anyone f- on the show has ever fucking done. Fucking bad. Just <laughs> not good. Like, read the room. <laughs> Littlefinger, like, hesitates a beat and switches gears immediately, prodding for weak points. He says, do you want to see your girls again? Sansa, more beautiful than ever. And Arya, just as wild as ever. This is scumbag shit. That brings Cat up short as he knew it would. And, of course, he didn't actually have Arya. Littlefinger will never stop treating people, even those he loves like pieces to be moved around on a board. Sansa, unlike her mother, realizes this now knows that Littlefinger's attentions have transferred from her mother to her, 
And the question is really who's playing who? Sansa certainly appears to have all the leverage in this particular situation. What do you want, Lord Baelish, she says as <laughs> Peter walks up. Sansa refusing to call him Peter, please. I love this. <laughs> is just delicious. I want you to be happy. I want you to be safe. This is fucking, it's bad. <laughs> I am safe. I'm at home surrounded by friends. I have Brienne, who has a big sword and is really good at fighting to protect me from all who'd harm me. What about happy? Oh my God, so why, creepy. Why aren't you happy? What do you want that you do not have? At the moment, peace and quiet. <laughs> <laughs> that is a savage line. So Brienne good. walks up and Sansa, Ed, Littlefinger's about to say something and Sansa just shushes him, shuts him down. No need to seize the last word, Lord Baelish. I'll assume it was something clever. Sansa has learned. Littlefinger played her once. She doesn't want to let him play her again. But... She's also learned that it's important to have allies and to use people as resources, and he does have an army, the Army of the Veil. Those facts haven't changed. Here's the question. Is what Sansa's doing with Littlefinger completely different from what Jon is doing with the Umbers and Karstarks? The specifics are yes, but the general we-are-stronger-together logic holds. Jamie and the Mad King and Jamie and the Mad Queen? Jamie uh -huh. served Eris, the Mad King, planned to destroy King's Landing with wildfire. Now he serves his own twin sister, a raging alcoholic with violent delusions of grandeur, who actually did destroy part of the city with wildfire. Tywin Lannister unsurprisingly cut right to the bone when assessing Jamie's career back in season one. He said to Jamie, while gutting a stag, you're blessed with the abilities that few men possessed. You're blessed to belong to the most powerful family in the Seven Kingdoms. And you're still blessed with youth. And what have you done with these blessings, eh? You've served as a glorified bodyguard for two kings, one a madman, the other a drunk. All of this has happened before, and now he serves a queen who's essentially both drunk and mad. Right. Cersei is going in these wobbly circles as well, just in the most recklessly Cersei way possible. The irony is... She's trying to follow the steel spine path laid out by Tywin, but much like the way her various attempts to avoid Maggie the Frog's prophecy breathed it into existence, her attempts to emulate her father run contrary to the late Lord of Castle Rock's views on how power should be used. Yes. And by seeking to be Tywin, she's actually comporting herself in a way that's completely anti-Tywin. She says to Jaime, I am the queen of the seven kingdoms. Recall Tywin from season three. Any man who must say, I am the king, is no true king. Yep. This, to, this to Joffrey. Forget the, the gendered noun here. The point stands. Moreover, like the Mad King, Cersei has lost her grip on reality. Her love for her children is what kept her grounded. Scary as that is to say, to consider that grounded. But with Tom's death, she's completely unmoored. It's safety's off. She considers Tom's suicide a betrayal because it brought about the prophecy that, in her mind, she worked so diligently to prevent. The result mm -hmm. is that even though she parrots Tywin's lines, almost fucking verbatim. She's deploying them in a context that her father would have found alarming and unhinged and uh, in a way that hastens an outcome that he would have sought to avoid. Tywin, back in season one, says, the future of our family will be determined in these next few months. We could establish a dynasty that would last a thousand years or we could collapse into nothing as the Targaryens did. Jamie's answer to Cersei when she says, I am the queen of the seven kingdoms, is he says, three kingdoms are best. I'm not sure you understand how much danger you're in. And then Cersei answers, and it's a mirror image of Tywin's statement to Jamie from season one. I understand we're in a war for survival. I understand whoever loses dies. I understand whoever wins could launch a dynasty that lasts a thousand <laughs> years. Jamie's response here also illuminating a dynasty for whom? Our children are dead. We're the last of us. He's the only one maybe capable of breaking... Uh, free of the legacy loop that Tywin and Cersei right. are both caught in. Um, Jamie knows what Tywin knew. Even Lannisters can't survive without allies. Where are our allies now? Tywin was the master at playing all sides and then choosing the winning one. Look what he did with the sack of King's Landing. Cersei, she left herself with basically no one except maybe Euron. And now what happens if she doesn't like it? They're also caught in their own perpetual family drama. Cersei says to Jamie, our little brother, the one you love so much, the one you set free, the one who murdered our father and our firstborn son. Now he stands beside our enemies and gives them counsel. Euron sees this and wants to exploit it. Since it appears that all our treasonous family members are fighting for the same side, I thought we rightful monarchs could murder them together. Um, Charming. And then we could really devote, like, another hour of this podcast to Euron's. <laughs> so here I am with a thousand ships and two good hands. Some and jazz fingers jazz, action. Jazz, little just light jazz fingers. Jamie's face there is so priceless. It's brutal. 
Another priceless face is when the Hound is asked to interact with fire. What an interesting episode for the Hound. You know, never forget his origin story when he was a child. His brother, the future Mountain, in the words of Littlefinger, a boy just born with a talent for violence, Mm. pressed his brother Sanders' face against a hearth, against fire. This event disfigure the hound, but it also provided him with a sense of purpose. It's the animating cause of his life, hatred for his brother. And ever since then, flames have terrified the hound. We remember on the Battle of the Blackwater how the fire, the spread of the wildfire, soldiers burning and running toward him, how this led to him abandoning his post. And now, in addition to being, as he says, traveling with a bunch of fire worshipers. What luck. He is also coming face to face with one of his most shameful acts, certainly one that he feels guilty for, that he carries with him. The mugging of the farmer and his young daughter to steal their silver after promising fair work for fair pay, after striking a bargain with these people who brought him and Arya in and gave them shelter and food. The Hound is at least attempting to process the past and to process the present as well. He basically asks Beric, what's so special about you, dude? Why does the Lord of Light keep bringing you back? And if you don't understand, why not? Why can't your God, if he's so powerful, just tell you? And Thoros has a strategy for how to deal with this. Come over here. Come look into the flames. The fire won't bite. I want to show you something. And guys, lo and behold, it works. Ah, Different reads from different people on this scene. Some people really loved it and felt like the Hound had an opportunity in this episode to show a lot of humanity. Some people, including the two uh, recording this podcast right now, (laughs) I think found the hurried nature of this exposition little tough. Um, Obviously, there's not a lot of hours left in this show, and we need to get people to Eastwatch or wherever they need to go quickly, but... All of a sudden, the hound just, like, looking into the flames and seeing a vision is... Yeah, I'll kneel by a fire now. That's tough. And just stare into it. That's tough. But what does he see? Well, ice. A wall of ice. The wall. Where? What else? It's where the wall meets the sea. There's a castle there. There's a mount. (laughs) Jesus Christmas. (laughs) Wonder what that can mean, guys. Looks like an arrowhead. The dead are marching past Thousands of them. Do you believe me now, Clegane? Beric says. Well, I guess, like, sure. What choice does he have if he just has this moment of conversion very conveniently? But it is not a mistake, obviously, that the Hound's purpose found in the flames involves a mountain, involves Eastwatch, involves this, this converging point where every story needs to go. All of this has happened before. All of this will happen again. Part of what will happen again as we are watching this show, and it's probably best to just actually accept this up front, is some of these rushed moments where the characters need to move where they need to move and they need to do it fast. Hey, guys. Just a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. And now, back to binge mode. Jason? Yes. When you question my decisions in front of the other lords and ladies, you undermine me. I'm really sorry, but you need to open my slacks. (laughs) When I slack you, please read them. But when you slack me and when you help me forge my chain, you open my eyes, you brought in my mind. So please, assemble the conclave and head to the Citadel to teach us everything we need to know about the Citadel. Let's go. Look at that. Look how that worked out. What might Sam find there? What might his quest to become a maester actually entail? Take it away. Guys, internships, am I right? Getting coffee, (laughs) changing toner, copy edits, fact-checking, and of course, emptying chamber pots, Uh. scrubbing out the vile fossilized awful of a thousand maesters rotten old bowels into the poisonous sluice chutes of the Citadel. Listen, it sucks, but that's what a novice of the Citadel has to do to earn those links. Let's talk about the Citadel and its history. Old Town is where the Citadel is located. Old Town straddles the mouth of the Honeywine River in the southern reach like a grand dam nursing a hangover. It's the largest, the wealthiest, and still 
the most exquisite city in the Seven Kingdoms, the center of religion and learning in Westeros. And of course, as its name suggests, it is the oldest. No one knows when or how the city began, but we know that its roots go as deep as the Dawn Age, so we're talking maybe 10,000 years ago or more, when the first men and the old races, the children of the forest and giants, who knows what else, lived in close proximity to each other and actually traded with each other with ships from Geese and Old Valeria. Old Geese and Old Valeria gone. The former swallowed by the latter, yet Old Town remains. The city is dominated by two landmarks, the High Tower and the Citadel. The tower, a great stone arm thrust over 700 feet into the air, topped by a flaming lighthouse fist, is the seat of the High Towers, one of the most venerable and peerless bloodlines in the Seven Kingdoms. The tower stands on an island named for a battle no one remembers, and its foundation was laid by a civilization that's been lost to time. The Citadel's origins are just as mysterious and just as ancient. Most agree that the seat of higher learning in Westeros was founded because of the bright-burning curiosity of one man, Paramore Hightower, better known as Prince Paramore the Twisted, second son of King Uther of the Hightower. Now, the prince was called the Twisted because he was born with a spinal deformity and he had a withered arm. Thus, his life was marred by illness. He's bedridden all the time. And none of that did anything to dim his curiosity about the world. He thirsted for knowledge. And he was lucky enough that his family wealth allowed him to transcend his mortal coil. Paramore brought teachers, sages, religious leaders, artists, mathematicians, alchemists from all around the world to Old Town just because he liked to hear them argue about shit. And when Prince Paramore passed away, his brother, King Uragon Hightower, granted a tract of land to Paramore's disparate scholars so they could continue arguing in, in a home of their own, in peace. And they have to this very day. As a book lover, a lover of history and ancient mysteries, Sam could be in no better place. The books there are perhaps the oldest primary sources in the known world. And some of the books mentioned within the world of our books uh, include... Meister Yurik's Wed to the Sea, which lays out the history of White Harbor, the greatest city in the north. Maester Childers, Winter Kings, the legends and lineages of Stark of the Starks of Winterfell. This one might be useful, guys, mm -hmm. because it reportedly contains a passage describing how the children of the forest taught Bran the Builder how to raise the wall. Master Herrick's History of the Kings Beyond the Wall, telling the story of Gendel and Gorn and their adventure under the caverns, under the wall, and their ultimate defeat at the hands of the Starks of Winterfell. Meister Kirk's Songs of the Drowned Men, A History of the Roots of the Ironborn, and Lomas Longstrider's Wonders Made by Man, which detail the various man-made wonders of the known world, such as the Wall and the Hightower. It's fair to expect analogs of these reference tomes to exist within the archives, and we'll get uh, to some of that in the seven, to the books that, that Sam's actually reading. The Citadel is also in possession of five of the fabled Valerian glass candles. It is said that, using these, the Dragon Lords could communicate instantaneously over vast distances, though they haven't worked in so long that their abilities are considered apocryphal. Incoming hopefuls like Sam are known as novices. Once they are in the first link in their chain, they become acolytes, and at the completion of their chain, a maester. An archmaester is a maester who is considered an expert in any of the Citadel's various disciplines. They are allowed to sit on the Order's governing body, known as the Conclave. Furthermore, the Conclave has the power to select one of their number to serve the king and his household. This is the Grand Maester. Shouts to my dude, Pycelle. Yeah. May he R.I.P. The trademark chains and collar of a maester represent the Order's service to the realm. They are uh, essentially enslaved to the realm. A quick syllabus of the metals whose representative fields of study are known to us. Uh, brown, chamber pot scrubbing, just kidding. <laughs> Black, ravenry, yellow gold, mathematics, iron warfare, silver, medicine, valerian steel, which only one in a hundred maesters earn, per Meister Lewin, R.I.P. also, Magic and the occult. Ideally, Meisters like the Night's Watch are supposed to leave their familial regional loyalties behind when they go into service. A Maester serves the lord of a castle, regardless of who that person is or how they won their position. Think of Lewin advising Theon, even after the former ward of the Stark seized Winterfell and, you know, executed the Stark boys. <laughs> Not really, but, you know, everybody thought so. In practice, that doesn't always work. After all, Lewin did help Bran Rickon and their wolves right. escape and hide from Theon's men. And in the books, Wyman Manderleafer refuses to entrust sensitive information to his ravens because he knows his maester was born a Lannister of Lannisport. Can't trust those guys. You can't trust them. Maester? Yes. Maester of the Ringer. Hi. I don't expect you to trust me outright. Okay. You need proof of my honest intentions. And in my experience, the surest way to a podcaster's heart is with a gift. I agree. A priceless gift. What you got? So let's head... To the Sept to do a little shopping. Let's bathe yes. in the light of the seven by sharing seven 
gifts in the form of seven of our favorite insights and observations from this episode, lightning round style. We're going to tackle this first one together. Yes. What are the possibilities for the priceless gift that Euron promises? There are... There are a lot. A lot of things that could be in play here. Maybe the show will shock us with something completely out of our consideration set. Is it an object? Is it a person? Let's ru- yeah. let's run through some of these. We are both partial to Dragonbinder. Right. The horn that Euron is associated with and has yes. in, in the, the books. books brings to a king's moot. Makes one of his dudes blow on it and then that guy just dies. <laughs> and his lungs are all Sucks charred Sucks for and that gross. guy. P.S. What would it mean if he had this horn? Well, uh, supposedly this horn, Valerian in origin, can bind a dragon's will to the owner of the horn. How, how does the owner survive blowing the horn? All of that is mysterious. What we know is supposedly this horn can control dragons. That would be a big deal, guys. I mean, you talk about a gift. That would be a that's a game-changing gift right. for Cersei. So the argument against it being Dragonbinder is essentially is basically just the show hasn't brought this up yet. Right. And, and season seven is too late to introduce something that massive. It's super Deus Ex Machina if they do it. It, now. it would be on the show. I think the counterpoint is that it it isn't for the story as right. a, at large. Like this is right. part of the myth and the lore and the mythology of the story. George has introduced this. People are familiar with this. It's there. It would almost be weird. It would it, it would fall into the young Griff category it would to be weird. to not bring it into the show. It's like, so this just isn't a thing that's going to matter in the books right. or they're just going in a totally different direction. But this would be a big, big deal. Huge. What about Bright Roar? I love this one, even though I don't think it's right. Bright Roar is the ancestral Valerian sword of the Lannisters that was lost when King Tommen II Lannister uh, went to explore Valeria with the sword on his hip and was never seen again. It's gone. That would be a cool gift, although my argument against that is, you know, Tywin melted down ice, made two swords. Oathkeeper is owned by Brienne. Widow's Whale was in Joffrey's possession when he died and is presumably still in the Red Keep somewhere right. under Lannister control. Jamie has two swords on his person right. when he's all armored up. Mm-hmm. Presumably the sword passes from Joffrey to Tommen and now mm-hmm. Jamie or someone else in the family right. has it. Um, Tyrion. This is, I would say, among the people of the internet, the leading contender right now. I don't think that this can be it. It's tough to see how they would get him. Right. He's too well protected. He's if you ha- to get to Tyrion, you have to fight Danny. Yeah, and the dragons and the fleet and the whole thing. I, this would be a great. Cersei would certainly love this gift. She would love it. That would be great. Tough get. In a hurry. Super tough. Also, game. my other knock against this is that Tyrion has already filled the role of the gift. Jorah right. presented him to Danny as the gift. I just think that's a little bit too much rehashing. I agree. Could be other people, though. Olena. Yeah. Maybe. Same mm, issue. Yeah. She's at Dragonstone. We see her, the back, we think we see the back of right. her. Uh, headdress in a preview shot for episode two. She is certainly aligned with Danny. The Tyrell ships right. are in Danny's armada. In theory, Olena is protected as well. Alaria and the Sand Snakes. It's the same problem as with the other people. She's with Danny. Right. She is with Danny. We see her in the scenes for next week's episode. We know that she's going to get it on with Yara. So yeah. she's there. It's hard to penetrate these forces. If you're going to go get one of them, take them all. Yeah. Take on the battle, to have a battle. Yeah. But, yeah, right. but obviously presenting Alaria to Cersei would be huge. This right. is the person responsible for Marcella, for Cersei's daughter's death. Exactly. Hard to think of actually too many things that would win Cersei over more. Could it be Sansa? I think mm. geography prohibits this just too far away. It's extremely far, although that, does that matter anymore? And it's also one of those things where it's like the North, it's, as they've said numerous times, it's huge. It'd be like, where is this person in this entire country? Right. And then going there. What about the armor? The Valyrian armor. This is kind of cheating because it's mentioned in a preview chapter from a reading George did sometime in the past. But it's known that Euron from the preview chapters has a full set of Valyrian steel armor with its Valyrian glyphs on it. Would that be useful to Cersei? I don't know, but that's a pretty cool gift too. 
it's almost too priceless. It's almost to too give price. up. Yeah. Worth noting here that you know, so the, so episode names and descriptions only for the first three of yeah. seven episodes were released, and it is worth noting here that the description for the third episode, which is called "The Queen's Justice," that's got to be the mountain, right? <laughs> This is going to be a Cersei episode, yeah. for sure. <laughs> Includes a line in the description that reads, Cersei returns a gift. So, yeah. maybe it's not the same thing, but it stands to reason if we're attempting to piece this puzzle together that the gift is something that Euron can attain quickly yeah. enough to give to her. The nature of the word return there makes me think dead body. Right, a head. Yeah. She returns a head As to opposed somebody. to like... You let me use that horn. I, I got agree. I got the dragon that I needed, and now I'm good. I agree. Um, so I'm still riding hard for for dragon binder. I want that to be it, but part of me thinks Alaria is the most likely option here. Number two, dragon glass. So much dragon glass. There's so much dragon glass. John talking to his men um, says, "I want every Northern Meister to score the records." For any mention of Dragonglass, Dragonglass kills White Walkers. It is more valuable to us now than gold. We need to find it. We need to mine it. We need to make weapons from it. And Sam says to Gilly while doing his research, the Targaryens use Dragonglass to decorate their weapons, not even knowing what the first men used it for. And then he opens a book to a map of Dragonstone. He points to a symbol on the map. And he says, that's Dragonglass. And Gilly says, a mountain of it beneath the ground. Stannis told me, but I didn't think... This is important. John needs to know. Here's a fun thing that happens whenever like books and or letters and or stuff appears on this show. People screenshot it and then pour over it and then translate it for Reddit and the forums, etc. Sam's books have some really tantalizing information. One, pertaining to the possible use of dragonglass to cure grayscale. Yes, you're on my love. <laughs> He's yeah, there. Just he's there. Sticking that grayscale covered arm out to Sam, he asking about Danny, the Dragon Queen. Yeah. Save him, Sam. Save him. Save him. So, you know, there's there's obviously gaps in the text, but I'll, I'll read what we have. It says, are even tales of the less blank dragon glass as a cure for blank? Great question mark. Work on illnesses and dis blank harm? Question mark. Incurs from ingestion, question mark, discount, the harm to the gullible, question mark, spent, question mark, on practical treatments, blank, this association with the. So what this seems to suggest is that we don't know the preparation, what goes into it, but could ingesting dragon glass halt grayscale? I hope we find out. <laughs> I know. really hope we find out, and I hope the answer is yes. Because Shireen. Shireen. Living on top of a mountain of it. I know. Yeah, could that have... Right? Could, could that have an And that's an interesting point. You know, stands through everything, all the knowledge of, that the maesters had at curing Shireen. Could it have been just proximity to Dragonglass, being Maybe. around Dragonglass that was actually the cure and not anything the maesters it did? It would solve the mystery it of would. no one really knows how this worked out for her. It really would. And in reference to the Long Night in the books... Quote, as the first men established their realms following their pact, little trouble them save their own feuds and wars, or so the histories tell us. What we learn of the long night when a season of winter came that lasted a generation, a generation in which children were born, drew into adulthood, and in many cases died without ever seeing the blank, some of the blank, that the never blank, light of day, blank, winter that fell on the world while they, blank, more than fancy that blank, some cataclysm, blank, many thousands of years ago, blank, Certain Lomas Longstrider in By Wonders Made by Men recounts meeting descendants of the Roinar who's blank. That's probably meeting descendants of the Roinar who describe something like winter falling on the Roin River in Essos. I'm just going to guess that that's what that has to do with. So questions. Also in that book, is that Littlefinger's dagger? It looks exactly like it. Shit like that does not happen it by mistake. They don't draw. No. These aren't real books, guys. Yes, they not. made them. It's a prop. <laughs> they don't draw a picture of a dagger what? that looks exactly, exactly like the dagger, the yeah. assassin's blade, right? Yeah. What does that mean? Is that blade even more special than we realized? I think so. So excited. And is that the Night King on the cover? Looks like him. It really does look like him. Looks like him. Looks like him. Number three. Is there some... Very real <laughs> Valencar foreshadowing in this episode, or 
am I just seeing what I want to see? Are we? I can go both. I can go both see. ways on it. It feels so overt if it's if it's real. I know. So there are a couple <laughs> things in this episode. One, Euron, after Cersei in raising why he cannot be trusted, notes that he killed a sibling. He says to have to remember here, not just Cersei. Yeah. Jamie's there. You should try it. Feels wonderful. Yeah. Okay, that's incredible. Yeah. And then, of course, there is the map. The lovely little paint-by-numbers map that this dude is making for them. Like, do they not have a map at the Red Keep? Is there not a map? Seems like a crucial oversight. This is just something that all of a sudden Cersei's (laughs) like, wouldn't it be great if we we had a map map of the realm? Yeah. What? I thought it was very strange that Dragonstone doesn't look anything like Dragonstone. Yeah, it's all right. Really weird. Anyway, anyway. As they're chatting... As Cersei and Jamie are chatting, <laughs> Cersei is standing on the neck. Isn't it really standing near? Can we just be like, okay? A, she's a little... standing near okay. the neck, and Jamie is standing near. near. Yes, the fingers. Dun dun dun. The parts of the realm known as the neck and the fingers. Cersei near the neck. Jamie I love near it. the fingers. Cersei, the one who would be choked, strangled. And Jamie, the one who in the Valencar scenario would be doing the strangling, the neck and the fingers. So many tweets about this. Love all of you tweeting us yes. about this. Thank I'm you. excited too. I want to believe. Number four, Simon Silvertongue's song. Any significance to this choice? Now, Simon Silvertongue, uh, for those book readers will remember, this is a guy who barged in on Tyrion's manse where he was keeping Shay and kind of uh, very vaguely threatened to rat him out. And then Tyrion had him killed. Um, any significance? I'm not sure. Other than they needed a song needed that had lyrics. Song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can't just keep doing Rain to Cast You can't just keep doing that affair. one. Yeah. Number five. Is the show turning or trying to turn Sansa into Cersei? This is an interesting one. This is actually like a key question yeah. and something to keep an eye on. She says to John, you're the military man, but I know her. If you're her enemy, she'll never stop until she's destroyed you. Everyone who's ever crossed her, she's found a way to murder. And John notes reasonably here, you almost sound as if you admire her. And Sansa says, I learned a great deal from her, including apparently how to wear her hair. A lot of hubbub yeah. this week about this. Now, Sansa's hair, it, I do want to say, did transition at the end of last yes. season. And one of the things that people talk about early in the show, directly to her, is her hairstyle. Wearing your hair like a southern lady now. This is not like the first time this has ever happened, but it is is really, really over. Like, this is just a a (laughs) hairstyle that Cersei used to rock, and Sansa's rocking it as someone is saying to her, you almost sound as if you admire her. This is something to pay attention to. Number six, a gravedigger nod with the hound Mm. burying the farmer and Sally. And this is a callback to um, the thought that the hound is the gravedigger from Feast for Crows. Though, for real, shouldn't they be burying the bodies? Shouldn't they know that? Burn those. Shouldn't Beric at least, Beric and Thoros at least be like, we should burn them? Burn those bodies. What are you guys doing? Come on, guys. All right, number seven. Where are my McCumber heads at? Right here. At, right at the back of the Night King's army, during Bran's vision, we see a giant white. And the camera zooms in, you know, it's building to this moment of recognition. And then the camera zooms in right past his face. And a lot of people have been asking, is that 1-1? Mm-hmm. Now, we do not think that it no. is 1-1 for a couple reasons. One, he died south of the wall. The, the Night King cannot have bodies from south of the wall. Correct. But, second, even if this is... The future, you know, we should acknowledge the brand is not necessarily seeing the present. Correct. We don't know that for sure. Even if he's seeing the future after the wall falls and in theory the Night King has access to bodies from south of the wall, John and Tormund know to burn yeah. those bodies. There's they no way know, John wouldn't have done that. They know to burn the dead. There's no way that one one's giant corpse is just sitting there. Right. But this is still notable because in addition to it being fucking terrifying that the Night King has a has giant whites in his army. It's a McCumber nod. It Remember is. back at the beginning of the show, Rob, after Bran wakes up from his coma, Rob walks in and old Nan has been telling stories and he's like, yeah, don't listen to her. One time, she told me the sky is blue because we live inside the eye of a blue-eyed giant named McCumber and Bran in one of my favorite moments in, yeah. the, in the, the show. Truly. Pauses and says very thoughtfully, maybe we do. Mal. Yes. This is what we've been waiting for our whole lives. 
It's what father trained us for, whether he knew it or not. The character who said that this week isn't our winner. But the logic largely explains our choice. Each episode, we're going to honor the person who played the game and advance his or her cause in some tangible way. And this week, the winner of our champion's purse is... Daenerys Stormbone, the motherfucking mother of dragons! Yeah! <laughs> of course it's Danny. Mommy's home! Guys. Listen. Well, of course it's Danny. She's home! This is huge! She is home. This is the place of her birth. Just look at the emotion on her face. She's been waiting for this her whole life. She spent the better part of her childhood a refugee running from safe haven to safe haven, not knowing how she was going to survive the next day. And now she is a queen returning to her ancestral home. She's watching her dragons soar above Dragonstone, where they can Beautiful. live free because Beautiful. there's like a there's a volcanic mountain there that they can just live in. It's incredible. Her family sigil carved on the castle wall. She doesn't have to have people do that. Imagine seeing this. Guess Stannis never thought to try to like just you know put a poster over that <laughs> something. <laughs> Like, like, yeah, she walks right by the entrance to the cave that yeah. we see in Sam's book. And yeah. it's like, again, like it's a little overt, but yeah. it's also really cool because it's another way of the show stitching this all together for us. The thing that they need is right there. Yeah. She is, you know, this is she's the winner, both for reasons that she knows and understands and for reasons that she doesn't yes. yet. She is sitting on a stash of one of the most valuable weapons in the realm, the thing that they need to thwart the foe and of course there's the emotional resonance of this thing that we have waited by the end of this episode 61 totally. hours to see and she's waited her entire life yeah. right I love the moment when she pulls down yeah. Stannis's flaming heart banner it's like get out of here yeah, invader it. usurper the family that took now obviously Stannis breaks off from his own family but the family that took her family down to be able to pull that down is so incredible and I love the moment when you know she enters the throne room where her ancestors sat yeah. and she doesn't she does right. not sit I love that too not yet it is a such a rare moment of yeah. self-awareness and introspection for Danny right. where she actually maybe knows that she's not quite ready yet, right. that there are some things that still need a little more time. And then she walks into the painted table room and it's like, damn, I hope someone wiped that down with Clorox. <laughs> because <laughs> boy, was Stanny Sr. getting up to some stuff Woo. in there. There's some, yeah. <laughs> My goodness. Howl that thing off, guys. My goodness. And there's just a great moment that ends the episode. Tyrion follows her in there and they look at each other and she turns to him and says, shall we begin? And great. that is why it's a win for Danny. The moment that she can finally say, shall we begin? Because she can. She can actually begin now. It has all been leading up to this. I love it. All right, guys. When people ask you what happened here, <laughs> tell them Binge Mode remembers. Tell them Winter came for your podcast feed. We are so pumped, truly, yes. to be back here with you for season seven. And we hope that you had as much fun as we did today. And we obviously hope that you will join us again next week. We are so excited for the second episode. Namiria back! <laughs> Check out the scenes for next week, guys. That definitely looks like Nymeria. I cannot wait. Join us. <laughs> This time next week when we will be discussing Season 7, Episode 2, Stormborn. Please join us on Sunday nights live on Twitter for Talk the Thrones right after the episode. Please check out Jason's Ask the Maester column and video on Tuesday. Obviously check out our homies, yes. Sixers fan Chris Ryan yes, and Andy Greenwald on The Watch on Mondays and Thursdays. Check out TheRinger.com. Allison Herman will have recaps for you. Everyone on the site will be writing. We'll have a staff precap. There's great throne stuff here literally every day of the week. Please consume it. And again, binge mode on Wednesdays. Until next episode. Remember, uh, there's no need to see the last word. We'll assume it was something clever. The Riverlands isn't the best place to find a lover, so the King's Road is where I go. Me and my friends at the campfire doing shots, drinking fast, and we talk slow. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> <laughs>